0: If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, please turn them to Romans chapter 14. As you turn there, I just want to thank all of you for praying for uh, us and and our family. Um, I mentioned last week that we brought my mom home on hospice uh, about a week ago, and uh, she's still there. So thank you so much. God's been gracious to sustain us, and um, thank you so much for Jonathan filling in last week. But we don't know how long this will last so we're going to dive back into romans and just continue to uh, seek him we need the word and uh, christ is risen hallelujah christ is risen from the grave that's our hope that's our hope as we as we prepare for celebrating resurrection sunday what a glorious truth that is to celebrate as we turn to the book of romans particularly the second half of the book of romans We remember that that's the truth that the first 11 chapters Paul was driving home. That is the good news of the gospel. That we who were separated from God because of our sinfulness, without hope of being reconciled to God by our own efforts, because we didn't have any righteousness of our own, God sent his only son to live perfectly in our place. To earn the righteousness that you and I could never earn. And that through his death, by faith in his death and resurrection for us, we might be reconciled to God. Given his righteousness as our own and forgiven our debts so that we can be redeemed and rescued and reconciled back to him. And the proof that that is true is hallelujah, Christ is risen from the dead. And on the basis of that good news, now Paul begins to exhort us in light of those glories in the gospel, Paul now turns the corner in chapter 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 to exhort us how we ought to live, how we ought to live differently because it is true that Christ is risen from the dead and and, and by faith in Jesus, we've been reconciled to God through him. And part of what he's telling us here in chapter 14 is how we handle these quarrels that happen in the body of Christ. In the first 12 verses of chapter 14, he's already been exhorting us about the weaker brother and how we ought to welcome the weaker brother. He tells us that the weaker brother is weaker because he's got some deficiency in his walk with Christ. He's not, there's a deficiency in his knowledge, in his understanding of Christian teaching and doctrine. He's a genuine believer who genuinely loves Jesus Christ and and wants to honor and glorify Jesus with every ounce of his being. He's very thankful genuinely to God for what God has done for him in Christ, but he's weak in the faith. There's There's some deficiency in his understanding of Christian doctrine that prevents him or her from having a grace-filled perspective on living as a follower of Jesus Christ. And, And Paul says this was causing problems in the early church because this weaker brother whose conscience was bound in some way was passing judgment on those who were stronger in the faith whose conscience was not bound in those ways. Paul gave us Two examples in the first 12 verses, in verses one through five, or excuse me one through four, he gave us the example of those who were restricting their diet to eating only vegetables. Uh, this was the weaker brother, and the weaker brother was saying, "Hey, Christians should not be eating meat because that meat might have been offered to idols, and that would be participating in idol worship, and that's not good, and you shouldn't do that, and I shouldn't do that." and they were passing judgment. The stronger brother on the other hand was was saying, no, actually, all food is fair game. All meat, including shrimp, as we learned, none of it is wrong to eat. Even if it was sacrificed to idols, there are no other gods other than Yahweh. And so everything is fine to, to, to eat. And we don't have to restrict our diet to only vegetables. And so the weaker brother was passing judgment on the stronger brother because he was eating meat. And in turn, the stronger brother in the faith was passing judgment or looking down on and holding in contempt the weaker brother because his conscience was bound in a way that the Bible didn't bind his conscience. And so there were these quarrels and fights and Paul was exhorting them, you need to not quarrel, you need to love one another in the body of Christ and not pass judgment. The second example he gave in verses five through 12 was that the weaker brother was saying, hey, there are certain days on the calendar that are more holy and more religious, and we need to observe them in in certain ways, whether it's the Sabbath that needs to be observed in certain ways or whether it's other religious or holy days or, or special days that need to be observed in a certain way. They're very important to observe, the weaker brother said. And you're not being a good Christian if you don't observe them and observe them properly. And the stronger brother, the one who is stronger in the faith, said, no, all days are alike. No one day is more important or more holy than other days. And our observance of them is, in fact, a matter of liberty, not requirement. Now, both of those were examples of what Paul called quarreling over opinions or what the NIV called disputable matters, what the King James Version calls doubtful disputations, Or what we learned Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones called morbid items and issues of morbid scrupulosity. These were issues that the Bible didn't explicitly deal with in black and white. And so engaging in these activities or abstaining from engaging in these activities was not a matter of right and wrong. It wasn't a matter of moral or immoral. But still, believers in the body of Christ had very strong opinions about this, and they were quarreling over their disagreements in this regard, as we do today, over things like whether a Christian should drink alcohol or not, whether a believer, a follower of Christ who really loves Jesus, should really go to see an R-rated movie or not, or whether a believer should smoke tobacco, or whether they should homeschool their kids or whether they should use essential oils or drink Diet Coke. Or whether they should have at least a 30-minute quiet time every day. Or whether they ought to, if, they're, if they really love Jesus, at least share the gospel with one person every week. Or whatever the case may be. Whatever issue of morbid scrupulosity that we come up with, Paul's objective in this passage was, was not to give us all of the possible applications of these truths, but rather to give us some guiding principles about all these applications. You and I, Paul, Paul just gave us two examples. We could come up with a myriad of applications to this, and we should. And I would encourage you to do this in your base group. What are all the ways in which this, is, this uh, has application to our lives today? where we have issues that aren't specifically dealt with in scripture in black and white, but we have differing opinions in the body of Christ about whether or not we should engage in or abstain from engaging in those things. That's not Paul's point. Paul's point is to give us these governing principles that that govern these situations when they arise in the body of Christ. So by way of of summary, so far in the first 12 verses, he's given us two of these governing principles. Let me give them to you by way of reminder. First of all, he said, God alone is judge. God alone is the judge. Go back and read the first 12 verses. He says, God alone is judge, so don't try to take his place and be your brother or sister's judge. That's God's job. He says in verse 4, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And later in verses 12, 10, 10 through 12, Paul said, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? Why do you look down on him in this regard? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, not of one another, but the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself, not to me, not to the elders, not to your base group leader, not to your mom and dad, but everyone will give an account of himself to God. So we ought not to judge our brother in these secondary and tertiary matters because our brother already has a judge, and it's not us. Our our brother or sister already serves a master and it's not us. They will one day give an answer of whether they eat or drink or go to R-rated movies or whatever it is. They will give an answer for that, not to us. They will never have to answer to us, but they will, and we all will, have to answer to God in all of these matters. We will give an answer one day to the King of Kings. So that's the first governing principle. God alone is judge. The second one that we covered last week is that the heart motive in these matters, the purpose behind them, our intent, what we're, tr- what we're going after in these matters, our motive is more important than the action itself. And again, this is limited to these issues of morbid scrupulosity, these disputable matters, that the Bible doesn't say this is right and this is wrong. It doesn't clearly outline that this is sin. Instead, it's a gray area. It's a a matter of doubtful disputation, as the King James Version says it. And in these matters, our motive, in whether we engage in them or abstain from engaging in in them, is much more important than the action itself. He gave us what our motive should be in verse 6. He says, The one who observes the day, that special day, he observes it. Why? In honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats. Why? In honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who, abst- who abstains from eating abstains, why? In honor of the Lord and give thank- gives thanks to God. The, the heart motive in all of these actions, whether we eat or drink or go to our rated movies or don't go to our rated movies or whatever the case may be, should be that we are honoring and glorifying God. That should be our heart motive. That's why he puts oxygen in our lungs to worship him with our lives. Whatever whatever we do should be done out of thankfulness to God. And Paul says that is much more important than the action itself, at least with respect to these disputable matters. So these first two principles, if you go back and look at verses uh, 1 through 12, they're geared primarily toward the weaker brother in the faith. Because the primary warning in those, in those first 12 verses is don't pass judgment on your brother who is exercising their liberty. And the one who is exercising their liberty is the one who is stronger in the faith because their conscience is not bound in this respect. The one who is exercising their liberty knows the word of God and they know that the word of God, which is the only thing that should bind our conscience... They know the word of God and they know that the word of God does not bind my conscience in this regard, on, in these matters about eating meat or whether or not we should observe certain days or not observe certain days. It's the weaker brother who, who doesn't know the word quite as well. Maybe he's not been discipled. Maybe he's a new believer or whatever. He doesn't know the word quite as, quite as well. And so his conscience is bound by something else other than the word. Maybe it's superstition. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's worry. Whatever it is, his conscience is bound by something other than the word of God to not eat meat and to observe certain days in certain ways. These are the ones to whom Paul addresses these first two principles as he warns them, don't pass judgment on your brother who's exercising liberty. Don't exercise or or don't pass judgment on those who who do eat meat and don't observe certain days in certain ways. Why? Because God alone is their judge. So don't take the place of God. And secondly, the heart motive that they have in this is more important than the action themselves. So that's through the first 12 verses. Now beginning in verse 13, Paul's going to shift from primarily addressing the weaker brother. Now he's going to begin addressing the one who is stronger in the faith, the stronger brother. And so in verses 13 through 15 that we're going to look at this morning, Paul's going to add two more to that list. He's going to add two more principles that govern these sorts of situations that the bible doesn't deal with in black and white that brothers and sisters in christ disagree with in the body of christ or whether or not we should or shouldn't engage in that particular activity he's going to add these two governing principles first of all don't cause your brother to stumble and second of all love your brother more than you love your liberty so let's turn to the word let's read verses 13 through 15 and then Call upon the Lord to unpack this for us. This is the word of God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean For anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. God, we thank you so much for this word. Thank you that we can trust that these are the very breath of God. Would you attend the reading of your word with your Holy Spirit to not just give us greater understanding about what this word says, but that it might transform our lives to make us as the body of Christ called New Branch, this local church that we might be more glorifying to you in how we love one another and not cause one another to stumble and not pass judgment on one another. Do this, we pray, in faith, in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's dive into this passage now. Uh, Verse 13, Paul begins that with the opening statement that's really a summary statement, isn't it? He says, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. Again, the first 12 verses are addressed primarily to the one who is weaker in the faith, the weaker brother. His conscience is bound. And not only is his conscience bound for himself, but he's further tempted to pass judgment on the one who is stronger in the faith, whose conscience is not bound in these regards. So Paul summarizes now and he says, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. But then it's as if he looks to the other side of the room. Now he, now he looks at the one who is stronger in the faith and he, what does he say to them? He says, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So up to this point, he's been addressing primarily the weaker brother. Don't pass judgment. They're exercising their liberty. Don't pass judgment on them. Now he looks to the other side of the room, and he looks to the stronger brother, and he says, decide now never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of your brother or sister in Christ. So again, this is the next principle that Paul gives in dealing with these scenarios. And that, and, and the principle here is where Paul warns us not to cause our brother to stumble. Don't cause your brother to stumble. And he tells us we ought to decide not to do that. He uses that word there, decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. And I don't mean to parse like little bitty words here, but this is really critical because this is a play on words. Paul is doing this for a reason. The word translated decide in the second half of verse 13 is the exact same word That is translated in the ESV as past judgment in the first part of the verse. It's the exact same word. This word is most often translated as judge, but it literally means to determine, to to make a decision wherein we render a judgment. So Paul is using a play on words here. He says, Listen, we're not to judge anymore, let's stop judging. Determine not to judge anymore, but if you're really intent on judging, your efforts at judging, your efforts at making a decision, at making a determination, a line in the sand, if you will, those efforts ought to be employed in deciding not to put a, a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of your brother. That's the judgment that we should be making here. Not judging them, but judging our own actions in response to them. That's how we should be thinking. Paul wants us to judge ourselves, not others. In the first part of the verse, Paul includes himself with the weaker brother, doesn't he? He says, let us no longer pass judgment on one another. let let us not do that. He's including himself in with the weaker brother. But now in the second half of verse 13, now he's including himself with the stronger brothers. The us from the first half continues on in the second half of verse 13. And so it's let us rather decide or or make a self-judgment never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. He includes himself in both of those which we said, weaker and stronger in the faith is a relative term. We all find ourselves in the body of Christ where, where there are those who are going to be weaker in the faith than us, and there are also going to be those who are stronger in the faith than us. Even the apostle Paul found himself in this regard. So he included himself in the weaker brothers. He said, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer. But he also includes himself in the in the stronger brother, with the stronger brothers, he's, he says, let us decide. Let us make a, a decision, a self-judgment, never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. So Paul is exhorting us, church, to make a decision, to determine this, to, to render a judgment here, to determine not to do this to never cause our brother or sister to stumble. He, he wants to, us to lower the gavel on, on ourselves, to be our own judge in this regard, and to issue a ruling to ourselves and determine that we will not be the cause of our brother stumbling. So church, let us let's follow his advice, his counsel there. Let us determine, church, to love one another enough that we're, we're not going to cause one another to, to stumble, no matter what the liberty is. Now before we move on to talk about stumbling blocks and hindrances, let's be clear about what stumbling actually means and what it doesn't mean. To stumble means just what it sounds like it means. It means that your foot strikes something and because of your foot striking it, you trip and you fall. You you literally stumble. That's what the word means. You trip over something and you fall. And a brother or sister in Christ stumbles when he or she acts in a way that violates his own conscience about what he believes about these, these kinds of matters. Which according to the last verse of chapter 14, whatever is not done according to faith is sin. So we can say that stumbling is causing someone to fall into sin. That's what stumbling is. It's falling into sin. What is it not? It is not simply being offended. That's an important distinction to make, church, because I tell you, in this culture, we get all wrapped up in that. Getting offended. Offending others, offending our sense of self-righteousness and self-importance is a cardinal sin in our culture. You better not offend anybody, but biblically, it's not even listed as a sin. Offending is causing someone to be upset or displeased or annoyed in their self-righteousness. The Pharisees were offended by Jesus. Jesus was a rock of offense, Peter says. He was a a rock of offense because he offended their sense of self-righteousness. They thought they were righteous because they were following the law to a T, they thought. And so they thought themselves righteous and he told them, that's the far, you're the farthest thing from it. And if that's what you believed, that would offend you as well. If you're here this morning, you're investigating the claims of Christ and apart from Christ, you think, you know what, I, I'm going to make myself right before God. I, I'm going to improve myself and I'm even going to go to church and I'm going to try to learn some of this and I'm going to try to apply some of this so that I improve my life and make myself look better. And maybe that's going to kind of cause cause God to grade on a curve, and and I'll make the grade because of my good works. Jesus offends you in that because he says you are not righteous, and you'll never earn that righteousness. The only way you get that righteousness is by faith in me, Jesus says. And so the Pharisees were offended by that. So if I do something that you don't approve of, something that's not clearly sinful in Scripture, but just something that you think is wrong, and you're offended by my actions, it, it, it offends your sense of self-righteousness. Listen, the Bible doesn't contend me for that. So that, that's not what Paul is talking about when he talks about being a stumbling block. But if I do something, maybe it's the very same thing. Something that you truly believe is is wrong. It's wrong for you. And you don't, you believe it's wrong for you to do it. It's a sin for you to do it. And my doing of it causes you to act against your conscience. And it leads you to do it. Even though you believe it is wrong for you to do it, then I have caused you to stumble. That's what it means. So how do we do that? How do we cause Brothers and sisters in Christ to stumble. Paul gives us two words here that describe how we do that. One, he says, determine never to, be, to, to put a stumbling block in the way of our brother. And secondly, he says, determine never to put a hindrance in the way of our brother. Now, these might seem like the same thing. They might seem like synonyms because they both are things that, that we trip our foot on and it causes us to fall and fall into sin. But each of these words has a literal meaning that is unique and sheds a a unique light on what it means for us to be the cause of someone falling into sin. The word that's translated here, stumbling block in the ESV, literally refers to an obstacle, just an obstacle that's in the way. In fact, the New American Standard actually translates this word as obstacle. So it's an obstacle that's, that's in the way. And you trip over it while you're walking, and it causes you to stumble. We've talked here already about how the Pharisees stumbled over Jesus. He was the rock of offense. But a stumbling block doesn't have to be a rock. It's just anything that's in our path where we're walking, and we trip over it, and we stumble, and we fall. It doesn't have to be a rock. It could be anything. Anybody who's ever had a toddler knows this. Anybody who's ever had a teenager knows this. Anybody who's ever had a husband knows knows this it could be anything right anything that is carelessly left out whether it's a toddler's toy or a teenager's pizza box or a husband's rake whatever it is right it's carelessly left out and it's left out in the pathway of where people walk and it can be a cause for people to trip over it stumble and fall When we carelessly exercise our liberties in these regards, in these kinds of disputable matters, when we carelessly exercise these liberties in the pathway where other believers are walking and living their life in Christ, we run the risk of being a stumbling block to them. So I think what Paul is exhorting us to with this idea of don't put a stumbling block in the way of our brother is don't carelessly exercise religious liberty. In your exercise of your religious liberty, don't be careless. Don't do it without consideration of your brother and sister in Christ and how it might affect them. When we carelessly exercise our liberties, we're not thinking about our brother and sister in Christ. We're not loving them, we're not considering them and how this might affect them. We're not considering the possibility that our exercising our liberty That the Bible doesn't say we shouldn't. We're not thinking about the fact that this might cause them to fall. They might trip over that. And it might cause them to fall into sin. The other word that Paul uses to describe something that causes our brother or sister to stumble is the word hindrance. That's how it's translated in the ESV that I read from. Again, a hindrance is very similar to a stumbling block. Oddly enough, the New American Standard that translates stumbling block as obstacle translates hindrance as stumbling block. So it's very similar, and a lot of people look at this as a, a synonym, but there is a unique meaning to this particular word. And I believe it carries a more sinister and devious means of causing our brother to stumble. Well, the stumbling block... Has to do with being careless with respect to how we exercise our liberties. This word, this translated hindrance in the ESV, this word refers to a more intentional, sinister, devious effort to try to trap our brother or sister and entice them into sin, to violate their conscience. The Greek word for this word here is scandalon, it's where we get our English word scandal. Jesus uses this th- same word in Luke chapter 17 when he tells his disciples this. He says, temptations to sin are sure to come. That phrase in the ESV that's translated temptations to sin is the word on. Temptations to sin, enticements to stumble are sure to come, Jesus says, but woe to the one through whom they come. Why woe to him? He tells us in verse 2 of Luke 17. It would be better for him, the one through whom temptations come, the one through whom scandalon comes, the one through whom enticement to stumble comes. It would be better for him, Jesus says, if a millstone, a huge rock, were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to sin. So Jesus refers to scandalon as temptations to sin. Enticements to stumble. And he warns the disciples by telling them, listen, if that's what you're going to do, it would be better if you go grab a big rock, put it around your neck, and throw yourself into the ocean than to cause one of my brothers to sin. It's a very serious warning from Jesus. This word "scandalon" literally, it, the literal meaning here it is a trigger, the trigger on a trap. Regardless of what kind of trap it is, there's always a trigger. Now I've got a couple of pictures and I'll to put it on the screen for you of two different kinds of trap. The first is a deadfall trap. You've probably seen this. Nobody ever uses this kind of trap anymore. But that was the typical kind of trap that people in Paul's day would have used. And what happens is the animal comes along and he, he hits the trigger, that little piece of wood there that is holding up that rock. He triggers that scandal on the rock falls and it captures the animal. Now, for us, when we think of a trap, we th- might think more of something like a bear trap with these big old claws. And when a bear or other animal steps on the middle of that trap, the scandalon, the trigger of the trap, it triggers a spring that causes the jaws of that trap to close on the bear's foot and it traps him. Now, in both of those kinds of traps, we're, we're not just hoping that an animal is going to come along and trigger the scandal on, right? That's not what we're hoping. What do we do? We put something on the scandalon that is appealing to the animal, something that's going to entice them, some kind of bait, if you will. And the animal is drawn, it's enticed to that bait, and as a result of being drawn to it and enticed to it and tempted by it, it triggers that scandalon and it is trapped in the trap. So while the stumbling block just care, deals with carelessness in our exercising of liberties, this word scandalon or hindrance speaks more to a kind of deliberate and intentional effort to entice a brother or sister in Christ into doing that which they believe is wrong for them to do. So let's understand the two warnings that Paul gives here. First of all, don't be careless in our exercising of liberties. But secondly, don't entice your brother or sister to do something that they believe is wrong for them to do. The first is an exhortation against being a stumbling block, and the second is is an exhortation against being a scandalon—that—that means of enticement that's going to trigger them to fall into sin. Now, how does this work out in real life? Well, let's say that I have the liberty to drink alcohol. We'll just go back to that example. It's the one that most readily comes to mind. Let's say I have the liberty to drink alcohol. And I believe biblically, I would have the liberty to drink alcohol. That liberty, of course, is bounded by the biblical principle to be responsible and to not drink too much and not, be, not become intoxicated. But that liberty is also bounded by the exhortation to not cause my brother or sister to sin and to stumble. So I need to be very careful how I exercise that liberty. And if I'm careless in exercising a liberty like that, I run the very real risk of a weaker brother who's weaker in the faith seeing me exercising that liberty, seeing me drinking that alcohol, and perhaps enticing them to violate their conscience in this regard. And then I got to go get a millstone and put it around my neck and jump into the ocean. That means bad stuff. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that you should never drink in public, but perhaps it does mean that sometimes. Perhaps it does. It it, it probably, most definitely does mean that you shouldn't take a selfie of yourself taking a 12-pack down to the lake and posting it on Facebook. Or apply that to your own life in whatever means it, it, it applies. If I'm that careless about something that I know that other believers truly believe is wrong and sinful that I'm running the very real risk of being a stumbling block to them causing them to trip up on my actions and leading them to violate their own conscience but I can also cause them to sin fall into sin by being a scandal on by actively and deliberately enticing them in this regard let's say I had the liberty to drink alcohol but your conscience was bound and you believe it was wrong for you to do so and let's say we're out to dinner, and I ask you if you want to have a beer with dinner. And you explain to me, no, I think, I think it's, I, I believe I shouldn't be doing that. And I say, well, you know, it's no big deal. You know, you have, you, have, you have liberty to do this. It's okay. You can still do this. It's not, don't be such a prude. It's okay. You can, you can do this. Jesus turned water into wine. You can drink. Well, what if? What if you're not drinking because you're a recovering alcoholic? That's like putting a pot of honey on that bear trap. It's like putting a piece of cheese on that mousetrap. I would be enticing you to sin. So Paul's overarching exhortation in this section is don't cause your brother to stumble, whether it's by carelessly exercising your liberties or whether it's by deliberately trying to entice your brother or sister to sin and violate their conscience. But then in verse 14, he shifts gears, and now he gives us the biblical answer to the question about eating meat. Because that was the original question, right? That was the original concern in this church. Some people were eating only vegetables. Some people were eating meat. And they were fighting, they were quarreling, they were arguing about who was right and who was wrong. And isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't give us the answer until verse 14? He spends 13 verses talking to us about how we ought to treat one another, how we ought to consider one another, how we ought to love one another and put one another first before he gives us the verdict about whether it's right or wrong. I think we ought to learn something from that church. I think we should learn from this that in dealing with these kinds of disputable matters, we ought to be very slow to spout off a thus saith the Lord mentality. And very quick to affirm that whatever you do in these matters of disputable matters, whatever you do, it ought to be done with the heart of honoring and glorifying God. Are you drinking? Are you not drinking? Why? Are you doing it to honor and glorify God? Are you doing that for yourself or to please others or to make yourself acceptable? What's your heart in that? That's what he spends the the, the whole first 13 verses talking about. And don't judge one another in this. The point is not to judge one another. The point is to honor God and glorify God. But now he gives us the verdict, right? So what's the verdict? First half of verse 14. He says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus, that nothing in itself is... Nothing is unclean in itself. I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. Notice notice Paul's words here. He's very emphatic, isn't he? He says, I know. Not only do I know, I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus. That's that's not a common phrase for Paul. He's being, being very emphatic here about nothing in itself is unclean. How can he be so emphatic? Well, maybe it's because he knows what Jesus said in Mark chapter 7, when Jesus said, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. What is outside us that goes into us besides oxygen and water? It's food, right? So he's talking about food. There's nothing outside of us that by going into us will defile us but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then a few verses later, he says in verses 18 and 19, do you not see that whatever goes into a person comes from, out, from outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Quite graphic there. Um, and then Mark adds this commentary, this parenthetical thought here. This isn't my commentary. Th- this is Mark's commentary recorded in God's divine word. This is the breath of God, right? And so, mark as this commentary, thus he declared all food clean. Because if it's unclean and it goes into us, it'll make us unclean. And Jesus said, there's nothing outside of us that goes into us that makes us unclean. So he declares all food clean. Paul also concluded likewise when he was addressing the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10. Listen to verses 25 and 26. He says, eat whatever is sold in the marketplace, whatever, meat, vegetables, rice, shrimp, whatever. Eat whatever is sold in the marketplace without raising any question on the ground of conscience. And then he quotes from Psalm 24, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In other words, it's all clean. It's all clean. Nothing is unclean in itself. Which is why Paul is going to say in the very next verse that we'll we'll look at next week, Lord willing, in verse 16. So do not let what you regard of as good be spoken of as evil. What do you regard as good? That which is clean, that we eat. It's good food, shrimp, steak, whatever. You regard it as good, so it's it's clean. He says, don't let what is good be regarded as or be spoken of as evil. Nothing is unclean in itself. But there's a but, isn't there? There's a caveat. Listen to the caveat, verse 14. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but, here's the caveat, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. That's the weaker brother, right? The weaker brother whose conscience is bound in some way that it's unclean because of his experiences, his background, what he's been a part of, His lack of discipleship, his lack of understanding of some of the nuances of the word and grace, he thinks it's unclean. That's the weaker brother. But note that Paul doesn't say that weaker brother is wrong in his thinking. Paul doesn't say, sit that brother down and make sure he understands that he's wrong in what he thinks. Is he wrong? Yeah. But what Paul says is, it is unclean to him who thinks it's unclean. It is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Now, why would that be? If Paul has established in the first half of the verse that nothing is unclean in itself, nothing. Then why would something that is clean become unclean just because someone thinks it unclean? Well, the answer is because their eating of it would not be from faith. Look at the very last verse of chapter 14. Paul says, but whoever has doubts. What are are the doubts? The doubts come from a lack of faith, a deficiency in faith. They're weaker in the faith. Whoever has doubts about this is condemned if he eats. Because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. See, that's why we have to be very, very careful about not causing our brother or sister to stumble and fall into sin. Because if they think it's wrong for them and they see us doing it and exercising our liberties. And they're, by that, they're enticed to do it anyway anyway then their doing of it is not from faith. And so it would be sin. Even though the act itself is not sinful, for them it is because they'd be doing it not from faith. They'd be violating their conscience. And the point here that Paul is making is, if that's a possibility, if it's a possibility that my exercising of this liberty could cause my brother or sister to stumble, and violate their conscience, then how unloving would it be of me to not consider them in exercising my liberty? And that's what Paul addresses in verse 15. He gets back to this overarching exhortation that he started at the beginning of chapter 12, all the way through chapter 13, of loving one another. He's been hitting this over and over. Loving one another fulfills the law, he says. Now he gets back to it in verse 15. He says, For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Now what does it mean for our brother or sister in Christ to be grieved by our exercising of a liberty? What does it mean that they become grieved? I think it means two things. First of all, I do believe it, it means that our brother or sister Christ is hurt by this. Not just that they're offended, but they're hurt, they're troubled in their spirit, they're confused, they're disheartened, they're distressed by the exercising of our liberty. He's a genuine believer, one for whom Christ died, as Paul says here, but he sees you exercising your liberty in some way, and because he, has, he or she has a deficiency in their understanding of Christian teaching in some regard... Their conscience is bound, and they think, I, I don't understand. How could you do that? That is wrong. That is terrible. That is not honoring to Christ. I thought you were a Christian. What is going on? And they're hurt, and they're distressed, and they're disheartened, and they suffer not, in their, not only in their mind, but in their soul, in their heart, thoroughly saddened and perhaps even worried about what this means for their own faith. Church, I, I, I think... And I'm not within the majority of even the commentaries that I've had the privilege of reading through about this. This is this is a, this is a minor interpretation, but I believe this is part of what it means to grieve our brother or sister in Christ. And if so, then we perhaps need to change and modify our definition of what it means to stumble. Earlier, we said to stumble means to fall into sin. It doesn't mean to be offended in some kind of self-righteousness, offending our self-righteousness, but the idea of grieving our brother or sister goes beyond a mere self-righteous offending to hurting them, damaging their faith, making them worry and be overly concerned about both our faith and perhaps even their own faith. And so perhaps Causing a brother to stumble means more than just causing them to sin, but perhaps it also means causing them to be so grieved that they not only fall in sin, but they fall in their faith, in their trust of God. Let me give you a couple of examples. Um, A couple years ago, a couple summers ago, uh, the church graciously gave me a sabbatical during the summer uh, three months to recover and spend time with family and my wife. And, and we thoroughly enjoyed that summer of, of reconnecting and just spending some time away from the, 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 the heat of ministry. Um, but one of the things that we did towards the end of that summer, as kind of a last blowout, is we went to Universal. We went to Universal Studios. And one of the things that we did while we were at Universal Studios is we went to the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Now, some of y'all may recall that uh, many many years ago when Harry Potter first came out, there was this big stink about whether Christians should really be reading that kind of stuff. And it falls squarely within these disputable matters that Paul is speaking of here in this passage. But one of the things that I did in going to the wizarding world of Harry Potter, we we the Susan and the and the boys love the books, we love the movies. They're not wizards, Susan's not a witch, I'm not, uh, you know, we just wanted to enjoy the park. But one of the things that I did when, we was at, when I was at the park is took several pictures at the Wizarding World of Harry Potter and put them on Facebook. And upon returning home, there was a sister in Christ that said, you know, that, that, really, that really hurt. It really bothered me. But it wasn't in a self-righteous kind of offensiveness. It, it, it was the, the, the story was she had been in the occult. She had been a witch. She had been really caught up in that. And it was no small deal to her. She so I really, said, I really struggled with seeing on Facebook and all these people and all these friends of mine seeing that, that, this, that you were a pastor and you're going to this place. She's not here. She's not, she's not with us here. But, but I would submit to you that she was the one who was weaker in the faith. Her conscience was bound in some way. But, but my, in, in, in essence, flaunting carelessly of my religious liberty, grieved her, distressed her, and that was unloving of me. I'll give you another example. When Susan and I first met, when we, um, well, after we met, and we began seriously dating and it, it later got engaged. Uh, one of the things that she shared with me is that she comes from um, an alcoholic home. Her dad um, abused alcohol and it had a lot of effect on her family growing up. And she shared with me very early on in our relationship that that was a deep fear of hers. That, that, That could happen to me and that could happen to our family. That was an unhealthy fear Of alcohol you could say in a sense that was being weaker in the faith but how unloving would it be of me to say well honey i know that's your fear but i'm going to exercise my liberty anyway i said honey that's that's something you're you're never going to have to fear with me and that's something you're never going to have to fear with our family so I'm a teetotaler, not because I believe that drinking is a sin, but, but out, of, out of deference. Now, my wife doesn't feel that way anymore. She doesn't have that fear. God's continued to sanctify her. But that was my commitment to her. Out of deference to, to where she was, I, I needed to limit my religious liberty in that regard. I think that's part of what it means to grieve our brother or sister in Christ and exercising liberties. But the other thing that it certainly includes is spiritual destruction. Church, lest we think that causing our brother or sister in Christ to stumble is a small matter, listen to how Paul describes the one who stumbles by violating their conscience. He said that in the second half of verse 15, By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. He says it again down in verse 20. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. What is the work of God? It is the weaker brother, sister, in Christ. Don't destroy them. This is a very serious warning that Paul gives here. Almost always, when the Bible speaks of, of people being destroyed like this, it's referring to spiritual destruction. Being spiritually destroyed to the point where they spend an eternity apart from God in a very real place the Bible calls hell. Now, I affirm perseverance of the saints. We affirm that as a church. I affirm that with full conviction. Those who are saved are always saved. True believers will persevere in the faith to the end. All those whom God has saved, back to Romans chapter 8, God will keep them in the faith to the end by his grace. But church, we cannot allow our affirmation of that doctrine to cheapen the warning that Paul gives here. Do not cause your brother to stumble, for the one who sins against their conscience may be spiritually destroyed. And we're going to talk more about that in the weeks ahead, but for now, let us not take lightly how we treat one another, especially uh, the ones who have a weaker conscience, because causing them to stumble, according to the Apostle Paul, can have eternal consequences. And so, based on this warning, we can draw out a final exhortation from Paul in this passage. The fourth principle that governs these, ad, these disputable matters. The first is God alone is judged. Don't take his place. Secondly, the, the motive that you have, the reason why you're doing it is more important than the action. Third, that we've covered today, don't cause your brother to stumble. And then fourthly, and we'll just mention this briefly, love your brother more than you love your liberty. And he's been talking about all around this, but he hits it hard in verse 15. He returns to this overarching exhortation of loving one another. He says, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. If Paul has been saying anything in chapters 12 and 13, he's been saying, we have to love one another. He wants us to walk in love with one another. And it is simply not walking in love to be all about exercising my liberty to do this or don't do that. With no consideration at all to how it affects my brothers and sisters in Christ. Is it causing them to stumble? is it grieving them? Do I even know? Do I even care? Paul says, if we truly love them, which Paul tells us is a defining characteristic of a genuine believer in Christ, right? He says, you will know they are my disciples by how they love one another. So that's the defining characteristic of a believer, And Paul says, if we truly love them, we will care. We will consider how it affects them. And we will be willing to curb our liberties out of deference for our brothers and sisters in Christ whom we love dearly. So church, let us love one another enough to be very careful about how we exercise our liberties with one another. Let's pray.